0: I am Dave and welcome back to the I'm glad I heard that. And today I have my friend back, Dr. Doug Carpenter. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. Doug is the owner and um, operator of Insight Counseling Services. They have 16 licensed counselors in their practice. They're located in Rochester, Michigan. And in their practice, they can handle almost every type of need for anyone, and um, depending on what you're dealing with in your life. Doug has um, helped us with uh, talking with families over the years about raising adolescents. Uh, Recently, he was on the podcast talking about his book and um, his understanding of how to raise a non-alpha male in an alpha male world. And at the end of that conversation, when Doug and I were talking off the uh, camera, he said uh, the next time he comes back on the podcast, he would like to share about sexual trauma and males. And so today we were able to finally sit down and start that conversation. So, Doug, thank you so much for being here. So, Doug has released a new book that came out this January called Secret Shame, which we will also be talking through that a little bit in the book. I'm sure he'll be referencing that. But um, when Doug and I started talking about this conversation, One of the things that um, he shared with me is that if a man experiences sexual abuse, especially in their childhood, the average is 25 years before they'll begin to talk about it. I Wanted to start with why do you actually, why did you want to be here today? Why did you want to talk about this?
1: And then we'll kind of go from there. All right. Well, uh, back in doctoral school, I decided to do my, doctoral dissertation on sexual abuse. I had taken a course in school that was focused on childhood trauma and a large portion of that was studying sexual abuse and sexual trauma in children and so I found that class pretty fascinating. Since that time I've just really been interested in the topic Um, Another reason that I was interested in the topic is when I was doing my doctoral work, a lot of my internship practicum experience was in a county jail. And the rest of the psychologists who worked there did not want to see the sex offenders. (laughs) And I was willing to see them, so most of them ended up on my caseload. And I would say uh, I can't really think of one sexual offender that I met who was not sexually abused themselves. Yep. And so it started with a significant sexual trauma. I don't want that to be interpreted that if someone is sexually abused that they're going to end up being a perpetrator. That is, that is not the case. Yeah. Um, there's a very small, very small percentage of men who are sexually abused who go on to be a sexual perpetrator. So they're, that's very small. So please do not hear that. Um, in what I'm saying. It just happened to be that the sexual offenders I worked with did have sexual abuse as trauma, as a, a the origin of their trauma, and contributed to their later acting out. Um, and the third reason would be that there were some instances in my own life as a child where some inappropriate sexual things happened to me. And so I, it took me years to um, come to terms with that myself and admit that that was sexual abuse. I tried to, like, just brush it off as other things or Mm -hmm. sex play between kids. Mm -hmm. Um, So it took me a long time myself to come to terms with, hey, this this was really abuse. And so those three reasons have just kind of fueled my interest in the topic and throughout my career for the last 25 years, Because I have a master's degree that specialized in addiction, I do a lot of uh, work with people with addiction, and one of those areas is sexual addiction, and I've often found men who have problems with sexual addiction also have sexual abuse in their past, so I began to examine and study how those two things are linked. Okay. So there's a lot of variables, and, and that's probably a whole nother show that we could get into, but, and so we're here to more talk about the sexual abuse piece, but sexual abuse can definitely lead to sexual addiction, and I will say some things about that. Um, It was interesting when I dug into the research, I've read hundreds of research articles about male sexual abuse, um, and I found three, at least three very large studies with several thousand participants that identified that men wait an average of 20, 25 to 30 years before they ever disclose to anyone they've been sexually abused and um that tended to coincide with what i found in practice i would have men come in in their middle age years and i was the first person they ever told about their abuse that they had never disclosed it um so I began to look into, okay, what is the reasoning for that? What's what's the purpose in men holding on to this secret for so long and it being such a trauma for them, but never dealing with it? And so in the research, there's there's not a ton of research, even though I, you know, I've read hundreds of research articles. There's not a ton of research out there about male sexual abuse. Most everything that we hear, it's most female. everything that's been studied is about female abuse. Right. And there's there's even some myths out there that sex, male sexual abuse is not harmful to boys. You know, and it goes back to that societal message that boys are always ready for sex. You should be always ready for sex. Um, Yeah. That it's a rite of passage, that you're earning your man cards something, you know, and some of that depends on if you're being sexually abused by a male or your perpetrator is a female. But in our society, male sexual abuse has not been viewed the same way as female sexual abuse. And so much less research has been conducted on female or on male sexual abuse. So of the articles and research journals that I have been able to find the reasons men don't tell was one of the most researched areas when it came to um, male sexual abuse and so there's a chapter in the book um, my book is called Secret Shame there's a, a chapter in the book I think it's chapter nine that deals with all the reasons that were identified throughout the literature of why men don't tell and there's probably could you give us a couple of yeah the absolutely please. there's probably over 40 reasons. Uh, in the book identified that I found throughout the literature or have have come across myself in treating men of sexual abuse. And the reason I named the, the book Secret Shame is shame is the number one reason why men don't tell. That through this process of shame, they've made a lot of negative and false interpretations of themselves and of the situation. So depending on the age at which you were sexually abused, Part of the problem is if you were very young, you may not have the cognitive ability to even recognize and understand what was happening to you. Mm-hmm. It may not be till 25 years later that you go, "That was not right. What happened to me? That that was wrong. That was that was sexual abuse." Even though I didn't have the words to describe it, I didn't understand what was happening. Um, another area is some kids are trained not to say those words how can I go tell you that somebody did this to my penis if that's a word I'm not supposed to use inside the house? Yep. Right? So, I can't, even if I know the language to use, it's language I'm not supposed to use.
0: Right, because they, you know, talk about shame, you know, you say the word penis, and, you know, that can be a shameful word, You depending on how the people respond. You know, right, that kind of a thing, and, you know, or, you know, people giggle and different things like that instead of just saying, no, it's just part of your body and so forth. Yeah, okay.
1: Um, Another significant area, and this goes into a deeper conversation, there are actually two categories of male sexual abuse, and, and same for female abuse, but one is intrafamilial, one is extrafamilial. So basically that means your perpetrator is either inside your family, so your father, uncle, brother, cousin... Someone, yeah. you know, within the family. Extrafamilial is a perpetrator that is outside of your family. And in extrafamilial abuse, there is a grooming process that occurs. Perpetrators are extremely calculated. Yeah. I tell men all the time sexual abuse did not just happen to you. You know, for a while, there was this big craze, like probably 20, 30 years ago, uh, around sexual abuse that, well, you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yep. You know, you were just there. That's a misnomer. That is a myth. You were not just there. Perpetrators are extremely manipulative. They're extremely calculated in what they do. They're very slow at their process and they're very methodical at what they do. So, all these factors go into a child's decision about disclosure. And a- another thing in the research is. If a child discloses and gets, or even starts to dis- disclose and gets a negative response from whoever they disclose to, they will immediately shut down, and that's another reason why they will hold on to this for years and years and years, because that negative response just shuts them down and it becomes fear and shame. Well, because what you're describing is, in order for a,
0: uh, a kid to be able to bring this up, it's taking everything out of them, right? Oh, like absolutely. You're, you're like, I'm going to finally. I'm going to peel back the curtain a little bit and say, hey, mom, did you notice that so-and-so next door, like sometimes he does weird things. Oh, he's just trying to be a nice guy. Done.
1: Right. 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 Well, we call that incremental disclosure because it's like I'm I'm going to lay a a piece out here and see if you bite. So I might say, (laughs) dad, I don't really like Uncle Bob. And then I'm just going to leave that there. And if you say well he's just weird. You're not inquiring. Like where's the Oh really? Well tell me about that. What's going what's going on that you don't like on- Uncle Bob? The kids not having an opportunity to disclose, but they're testing. You. They're laying that morsel out to see if you're going to bite, if you're going to be safe for them to, to disclose. All right, so up
0: until this point, you've given us a, really a lot of information and um, I think what this helps people understand is like okay, so i have a child who's in this age range basically you know what six to six to twelve years old okay not
1: saying that older kids don't get abused they do
0: absolutely but so now that we've literally scared the hell out of every parent and i'm sitting here freaking out about my own life um Give us some tools. What are some things parents can do to A, make sure that that door is flung so far open with their kids. And then also, if they do start to get this sharing, uh, incremental sharing, you call it, then what to be on the the hunt for?
1: Well, I would say relationship, relationship, relationship. You need to form a relationship with your child and have an open dialogue. You know, in our house, You know, we talked about the whole swimsuit area of your bodies. I use the medical term for their parts. We didn't nickname our body parts. Yep. You know, I think you need to be straightforward with that. You know, I think educating your child, um, you know, like I said, I spent time telling my kids before they went somewhere, this is appropriate behavior, this is not appropriate behavior. Um, These are healthy kinds of touch. This is not healthy kinds of touch, or if a person touches you in this area. I also talked to them about what is appropriate touch. You know, a doctor can touch you. I can touch you. You know, why? what is the reason somebody would need to touch you in that part of your body? I think the biggest thing I did was what I mentioned about telling them that this is an adult issue. Because more okay. than likely, an adult is doing this to them or an older kid so this is an adult issue you need to come right to dad and tell him that this has happened and not not delay not wait even if this person threatens you or tells you you have to keep this a secret you are my little buddy and we don't have any secrets yep so that's where it goes back to the relationship piece knowing your kids having an open relationship with them an open dialogue with them you know, I did not shy away at all with my kids when they had questions about sex. Mm-hmm. In fact, I trained my son so well that there were times he would ask me questions and I would be like, oh, my word. I can't believe this kid just asked me this. Right. You know, but <laughs> but I'm happy that that happened. Um, it's you or YouTube they're going to. Yes. If That's I don't educate 100%. them, some, somewhere, someone will educate them. And I wanted them to have the appropriate information. Yep. Um, so I would just strongly develop a relationship with your kids. And the other thing is when your kid tells you something, do not freak out. <laughs> do not react over the top. You need to treat these matters as factual, as they're just giving you information. Um, you know, and, and here's another thing. When ki- I, I see this all the time. You know, parents will find kids age four to seven, playing, you know, I'll show you mine, you yes. show me yours. That's totally normal. Because it's that at that stage of life when kids really start to comprehend that boys and girls are anatomically very different and they don't understand your part if you're the opposite. So, if you catch kids doing that, do not freak out. Right. Don't the, go to the room, and go, "What are you doing?" Ah! Right. You know. Yeah. Okay. This is just part of life. It's just trying to figure out the differences between boys and girls. Don't make a big deal out of it. Just educate them, but tell them that that behavior's not appropriate. You know, and, and just, just be a parent, but don't react huge. If, if they come to you and start disclosing issues of a sexual nature, um, or even asking you just questions, don't react in a big way. You're the adult here. You need to maintain control of your emotional state. The information that you impart to your kid. And the other thing, the second word that I would use is be curious. Okay. When your kid says something to you, be curious. Ask them. You, you know, it, when someone, you know, people make fun of psychologists and the questions that we ask, but we ask them for a reason. You know, when someone begins to tell me something, and I don't, I think there's more to the story, I will just simply say, tell me more about that. And if you feel like your kid is giving you a morsel of something, stop and think about that and say, well, tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. Be curious about what your kids are telling you. Be curious about what they're saying to you. Be curious about what they're doing on the internet. Be curious about their friends. Be curious about the other adults that they're drawn to. I know my son, I'm not much of an outdoors person as far as fishing, hunting, that kind of thing. But my son was way into that. Well, there was a much older, like, grandpa type of individual at the church who wanted to take him on this trip and them do all these kinds of things. I knew this man fairly well, but I still sat down with my son and said, here's what this trip should look like, and here are things that shouldn't ever be involved in this trip. And so he went into that fully educated. And of course, nothing happened, which I'm very thankful about. But at least he was educated about what to look out for. Okay. I tried to prepare him. And then when he got back, I was very curious about him, his trip. Tell me, I wanted a play-by-play every day. What'd you do? What time did you go to bed? Where did you sleep? Where did he sleep? Mm-hmm. Were you cold at night? Did you guys cuddle? Did, I mean, right? You know, I was curious. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And I even have to tell this to other therapists that when you meet with men, a lot of times men will not tell you if they were sexually abused, unless you flat out ask. You have to be direct. Now with your child, you can ask direct without being authoritarian about it. You can ask in a a question of curiosity. And so with relationship,
0: it's always about, it's about setting aside that time and, and I know for me as a parent, you know, it's like, you know, getting to the end of the day sometimes, that's just the goal, right? And so you want to power through, you want to rush through a couple of things. And it's like, well, that might be when those things start getting talked about. And, right. you know, and, and so that's great information for us as parents. And and some of this is like super common sense, right? You know, your kid's going somewhere. Just try to figure out what, what that means. Start it is, but
1: parents would rather trust than deal with the situation.
0: So then as we talk about... Your men who come into your office, and you, you, you tell just to, just some of the pain that these guys are dealing with, and and so forth. You're the first person this comes out with a because you know they share with you incrementally, and then eventually you ask straight out, and they go, "Yeah, I was sexually abused." Right? Layman's understanding of confession, of of, of yeah. bringing something out, that's got to be relief at some level for this man to finally. Finally, put the pieces together yeah. and say to someone trusting, wise, okay, yeah, do that. Um,
1: I think it's it? equally fearful and e- equally relieving. Like, but
0: before that, all they had was
1: shame. All they had was shame.
0: Right now, there's another thing: there's fear and your relief and relief. Okay, so and obviously you're a believer in Jesus, right? And so forth. And so when you, would, what is the hope? What is what is the the redemption look like for a man who is able to? bring this forward and and start to talk through it, what changes in their life, and um, does it get better for them, and how?
1: Well, it absolutely can get better for them. There is a lot of hard work to do. A lot of men who come into treatment think, I'm the only man this has ever happened to, I'm the only boy this has ever happened to, or I don't know anyone else this has ever happened to. When statistics tell us that one in six boys by the time of 18 will okay. have some kind of sexual encounter that they did not consent to or partic- or want to participate in yeah. or expect. So it happens more way more frequently than anyone is aware of. So first of all you have to break through that idea of that I'm the only one. Okay. The second thing is you have to break through what's called the masculine veneer um, that, we tend to as an adult use adult thinking and behavior and superimpose it on our child self. So, one thing i always hear is why didn't i stop it? Why didn't i stop it? Why didn't i why didn't i hit him or kick him or you didn't have that power. Yep. You know, you cannot superimpose adult capabilities and thinking and physical agility and ability onto an 8-year-old boy. You know, So I have to separate that out for them and help them to see that they were a very vulnerable young boy who was being extremely manipulated. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get into dispelling the beliefs of self-blame. Um, this did not just happen to you, nor did you participate. People under the age of 16 in this state can't consent to sexual acts. Children cannot consent to sexual acts even if you went back and instigated it you did that for a reason that is not you consenting to sex and it's hard sometimes to convince people of that that they did not consent this person was highly manipulated yep. manipulative and manipulated you on every level to the so keenly that you were not even aware of it nor could you even cognitively process it at that age Okay. You know and then all the societal messages that we tell men of what they're supposed to like and accept and be goes out the window with somebody who's sexual abuse they feel weak they feel taken advantage of their body betrayed them they have all these lies that they've been telling him so you spend months dispelling all those those false narratives that they have told themselves. So the
0: layers of the sign that keep getting peeled back and basically your work, and like you say, this is hard work for someone to go through. Right. But it's like, no, that's a lie. Right. That's a lie. Yeah. That's a lie. And then whenever I realize that something that I've based my behaviors or actions on isn't true, you know, that makes me have to reconcile everything and go, right. Right. You know, so you got, you go through that. You have to it, redefine yourself. And so now you're getting to that point, you know, however long that process is, you know, months, year, we, whatever it is. And the guy starts to understand. It's like, okay, all right. I didn't do this. I couldn't have stopped it. I'm not at fault. You know, okay. No, no. You got it. You, you're in a good spot. Finally. So the truth s- gets to get brought in.
1: So there's a really neat article. Um, I, th- I'm, The person who wrote it is slipping my mind right now, but um, I think it's Willis. I think the the researcher's last name was Willis. Um, But he talks about coming out of the dungeon. Hmm. And so at this point, we've worked through the lies. You have to decide to walk out of the dungeon that you've been in since your abuse occurred. You have to recognize that there's light at the end of that dungeon. And so... What we want to do now is is look at the effects of that sexual abuse and how it's still playing out in your life. What are those false narratives that have led to unhealthy destructive, destructive tendencies and behaviors for you that are playing out in your, your life now? And how do we begin to change those narratives? And then how do we translate that into changing your behavior? You know, maybe we have to learn to date. Maybe we have to learn to separate Love from sex and abuse from sexual intimacy. Yeah. You know, we have to start developing new concepts around love, maybe even God's love, because one of those false narratives is God doesn't love me because I did this. I'm bad. Oh, I'm geez. broken. I'm not worthy. I'm broken. <laughs> I'm damaged goods. Yep. I've heard it all. You know, all these negative words to describe a person about how they feel about themselves, and they have to begin to then rework even how God sees them, and that God was with them at that time of the abuse. God never left them, because a lot of men believe, well, why did God let this happen to me? And they're angry at God. Absolutely. Yeah. God didn't do that to you. Man did that to you. Yeah. And learning to accept God and God's love and that He can help you through this can be a real challenge right for these men i I try to show them god's love you Mm -hmm. know just in my work with them and to help dispel all these negative things that they've learned about themselves and that that imagery of
0: coming out of the dungeon you you know you think about you know stories and you know and that's a great imagery because i think every every guy can you know grasp that but it's like so that the the opportunities is that you are going to get to experience life in a way that you, uh, you know, the, the air is going to be a little cleaner, the right. sky is going to be a little bluer, your birds are going to chirp a little louder, and you're like, oh, this is this is, I'm coming alive Ooh. in ways you didn't know. Again, fearful, right? Because that means you know, I got to learn, I got to I got to reprogram. But this idea of rewiring, and printing um, programming, however you want to do it. One of the things I know in my heart that I want people to actually believe is that God can do that. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the ways that this happens is by, you know, people who have dedicated themselves to study, to learning, so that lie after lie, you can help them dismantle it and go, nope, take that away. That's not you. Right. Nope. That's and not who's you. the father of lies? It's Satan. Right. A hundred percent. And so... And then in that to be redeemed in a way to know that it's like oh my gosh god not only you know, saves me but he can rewire me right there's the hope and it's like i can't imagine i can't imagine you know for you the guys that you've worked through this with um i bet you i am sure some guys stall they get to a point and they can't go any further and that's Oh, it's it. too painful
1: i can't go there but then there's the guys who
0: who keep taking those baby steps and building, get in a new toolbox. And, you know, five years later, I got to imagine some of these guys are like, uh, so this is freedom.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. So you know? there, there's, um, there's a book called Courage to Heal. And it was probably the main textbook for female sexual abuse. And the author okay. of that book talks about moving from a victim to a survivor to a thriver. And so I've used that concept in this book and I use it in my everyday therapy with people that okay, you came in, yes, you were a victim of this, but now walking out of the dungeon, you are a survivor. You survived this. You're going to find, that the last two steps of this is making meaning of the abuse. Finding some kind of meaning for this. And a lot of times that it is that it was not my fault. I had nothing to do with this. This was perpetrated upon me. Yep. And then, um, you know, And that's moving into the survivor mode. And then moving into the thriver mode is not allowing all those negative behaviors that have developed as a result of your trauma template, learning to turn those around and making healthy decisions for yourself, learning self-care, learning what healthy relationships look like. There's a great saying in AA is that we're only as sick as our secrets. Yes. You've probably heard that before. And so we go through a period of time of letting go of the shame. The shame of this event does not belong to you. That shame belongs to the perpetrator. They hold all the shame. You were an innocent child. And so we go through exercises of symbolically giving back that perpetrator the shame that I have carried for them for the last 25 years. So that's moving into being a thriver, letting go of all these narratives changing my behavior, seeing what's positive, using my story to help others. Yeah. You know, if you look at the 12 steps, step 12 is all about sharing, sharing this message to other alcoholics, right? Well, the same is true in sexual abuse. You know, the, the, the final and healthy stage is being able to use your story to help others move from being a victim to a survivor to a thriver. Okay. And my work is complete when you become a thriver.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be quite the reward to see someone get there.
1: It is. Alright, so I assume that Secret Shame, is this available on Amazon? It is available okay. on Amazon. There is a complimentary text that goes with that book and it's called The Secret Shame Workbook and it's a 150 page book that coincides with the book and it provides exercises for each chapter to help you work through the information presented in that chapter. So you can also get the workbook if you're a male who either wants to work through this on your own, wants to work through this with a therapist, and it can even be used in a group format with a group of men who've been sexually abused.
0: I'd like to say thank you to Doug uh, again for coming by. Uh, what an amazing resource to have in our own local area um, and, and for being having a desire to write a book about this and to also be able to help us understand a, a little bit more so that maybe uh, we can help people move towards healing or someone watching this says there's some things that i need to start to dig through and let me get the right people around me to do that because this is not a road you go alone no no 100 percent on that and so um today is obviously um, a pretty heavy subject but what i'm going to ask is that you would uh, hit our uh, like button and also subscribe to the uh the youtube channel and again doug thank you so much for coming by today
1: thank you